Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Rebellions of 1837. Tories, pensioners, policemen, profligates, orange men, churchmen, parasites. Allow me to congratulate you. Your feet, at last, are on the people's necks. The compact satin parliament legalized their fun. And now they're hanging Sammy Lount and Captain Anderson. And if they catch Mackenzie, they will string him in the rain. And England will erase us if Mackenzie comes again. Our riflemen were in front. After them, the pikemen, then those who had old guns of various kinds, and lastly, those who carried only clubs and walking sticks. Colonel Lount was at the head of the riflemen, and he and those in the front rank fired. And instead of stepping to one side to make room for those behind to fire, fell flat on their faces. The next rank fired and did the same. At twilight on December the 5th, 1837, William Lyon Mackenzie and an improvised army marched on Toronto. Their action was the culmination of years of unsuccessful agitation for the reform of the colonial government of Upper Canada. Mackenzie was a journalist who had come out from Scotland in 1820. In 1824, he began publishing The Colonial Advocate, a newspaper which made him known throughout the province and won him the undying enmity of Upper Canada's ruling class. Political power in the colony then belonged to the small group of appointed officials who advised the British governor. Mackenzie, with his knack for the killing phrase, called them mushroom aristocrats, and he disliked their policies just as much as their social pretensions. In the 1820s, the rule of this administrative elite began to be challenged by a reform movement which called for an end to privileges and particularly the privileges of the Anglican Church with its vast land holdings. The reformers were sometimes able to elect a majority in the House of Assembly, but control of the government remained in England. In 1837, their frustrations boiled over. The British want the country for the empire and the view. The Yankees want the country for a Yankee barbecue. The compact want the country for their merry green domain. They'll all play finders keepers till Mackenzie comes again. Tonight on Ideas, we conclude David Cayley's series on the rebellion of 1837 in Upper Canada. Our story begins in the summer of 1836. An election is going on, and the governor, Sir Francis Bondhead, is defending the British connection to a crowd in Toronto. Can you do as much for yourselves as I can do for you? It is my opinion that you cannot. It is my opinion that if you choose to dispute with me and live on bad terms with the mother country, you will, to use a homely phrase, only quarrel with your bread and butter. The people of Upper Canada detest democracy. 
They revere their constitutional charter and are consequently staunch in allegiance to their king. In the name of every regiment of militia in Upper Canada, I publicly promulgate, let them come if they dare. Long live the king! Long live Sir Francis Head! Sir Francis Bond Head arrived in Upper Canada in January of 1836. By the summer, he was already challenging those who wanted reform of the province's government to come if they dared. Ironically, Bondhead himself had been sent out by the colonial office in England as a reformer. Upper Canada had elected a large reform majority to its House of Assembly in 1834, and the Assembly had appointed a Committee on Grievances under the chairmanship of William Lyon Mackenzie. The committee's report had gone to the colonial office, and back had come Sir Francis Head, charged with doing something about it. Head was an unlikely choice for the governorship of Upper Canada, so unlikely that for years historians had a theory that the British government had actually confused him with his cousin, Edmund Walker Head. A writer of travel books, knighted for having introduced the use of the lasso in the British army, Sir Francis was vain, opinionated, and politically rash. He tried to accommodate the reformers by appointing three of them to his executive council, but he soon quarreled with them, and the council resigned en masse. They claimed that Head had failed to consult them. Head responded by denouncing the theory that the governor ought to be responsible to his council. It was, he said, an insidious intrusion on the prerogatives of the crown and a harbinger of democracy, a word he spoke with contempt. The Assembly, in protest, refused to vote money for the government's expenses. Head dissolved the House and called an election, thus setting in motion a chain of consequences which would end only with the rebellion. Oh, have you heard the news in York about electioneering? I'll tell you just how matters work, so lend a patient hearing. A vote can cost a man his health, if to reform he's leaning. Some orangeman will crack his head, and send him homewards reeling. With a bow, wow. Bond Head managed to play the 1836 election into a contest over loyalty, a powerful and compelling idea in Loyalist Upper Canada. All the complexities of the situation were collapsed into a single, vivid plot. The reformers were cast as dangerous and disloyal Republicans, and Head himself took the role of party leader for the Tories. Remarkably, it worked. The voters returned an assembly with a large conservative majority. For the reformers, the loss was devastating. They had felt themselves to be on the threshold of real changes. Now the door had been slammed in their faces. Mackenzie, after learning of his personal defeat, sat and wept. Many of them refused to accept the outcome of the election as the will of the people. They thought they had been cheated, not just by Bondhead's demagoguery, but also by the violence and corruption which had marked the election. In 1836, the franchise was limited to property owners, and the reformers claimed that the government had swung the result by issuing deeds to those not entitled to them. 
Previous to, and even during the election, a vast number of deeds under Sir Francis Bondhead's name and seal of office were issued by the government under unusual and extraordinary circumstances and were distributed at the very hustings by government agents to poor men whose integrity was not sufficient to bear up against such disgraceful corruption. This was notoriously the case in the county of Simcoe. Men only for a short time residing in the country were thus brought up to the hustings to exercise the elective franchise in favour of Sir Francis Bondhead, whilst the votes of many old inhabitants of thirty or forty years' standing, who fought and bled in defence of the province during the last war, men of considerable property and influence, whose right to the franchise was never before questioned, were ignominiously rejected. The reformers also claimed that violence and intimidation had influenced the outcome of the 1836 election. If you had been in London at the last election, wrote reformer Robert Davis, you would have seen a set of government tools called Orangemen running up and down the street crying five pounds for a liberal, and if a man said a word contrary to their opinion, he was knocked down. The Orangemen were Protestant Irish, whose battle cries were the Crown, the Constitution, and the Protestant religion. They had arrived in Upper Canada in considerable numbers in the 1820s and 1830s, and they had quickly adapted to their new society by substituting the reformers for the traditional object of their hostility, the Catholics. Orange violence, corrupt election practices, and the unconstitutional role of Sir Francis Head as party leader all played a part in the 1836 election. But did they actually determine the result? Probably not, seems to be the consensus among historians. I don't think that it was any more corrupt than most of the elections in the province since 1820. For a very long time, there had been collusion between the land-granting department and local politicians, local conservative politicians, who wanted to ensure their election. But... This is only a matter of a few votes in any particular constituency. If you look at the actual voting results, constituency by constituency in 1836, the margins are pretty decisive, you know, and it isn't corruption that swings the election. Uh, the election results are no more startling than some earlier elections in which the Conservatives dominated without perhaps uh, having as widespread corruption attributed to them. What explains the outcome of the 1836 election to Sid Wise was the existence of a broadly-based conservative coalition with deep roots in many parts of the province. In the eastern district, where it was strongest, it even brought together such historic enemies as the Orangemen and the Catholics. These groups were not uncritical supporters of either the grandiloquent governor head or the family compact, but for their own reasons they were conservatives. Typical were the Methodists, who disliked the governor, but who also disliked what they saw as the growing radicalism of the reform movement. They worked against the reformers in 1836, and John Ryerson gleefully reported their success in a letter to his brother Edgerton. The radicals met with a most tremendous overthrow, and they come down so suddenly and so swiftly from their lofty elevation that they felt it and still feel it most sensibly. 
Not one radical was returned from the bounds of the Bay of Quinty district. The preachers and I labored to the utmost extent of our ability to keep every scamp of them out, and we succeeded. And had the preachers done their duty in every place, not a ninny of them would have been returned to this parliament. But, as it is, there is just enough escaped to tell the fate of the rest, and to moan over the dissolution of their miserably wicked and ruinous crafts. I'll be a Tory in Upper Canada. I'll be responsible. I'll keep my council dull. All reformers down I'll pull. I'll fill the province full of the sons of old John Bull. I'll break each rebel skull. I'll be head upon the throne. I'll be the Constitution. I'll be a Tory. I'll be a Tory. I'll be a Tory in Upper Canada. The election of 1836 left the reformers dazed and angry. They sent Dr. Charles Duncombe, who had held his seat in Oxford County, off to England to make known to the House of Commons and the Colonial Office the dangerous crisis at which the affairs of the province have unhappily arrived. The Colonial Secretary refused to see him. For Duncombe, this was probably the last straw in his progress from moderate reformer to rebel. As a member of the legislature, he had put forward progressive and well-considered ideas. He had, for example, advocated a school system based on taxes rather than fees, with elected school boards and equal access for girls, a proposal years ahead of its time. But as an American-born liberal, he could never hope to achieve the power to realize his ideas. Now he had seen the control of the assembly snatched away from the reformers by bribery and violence, an appeal to England cut off. The only remaining alternative, he wrote to Robert Davis in the fall of 1837, was to try to change the system. It is high time for the reformers to be up and doing. When Sir Francis Head declares that the British government never intended any such absurdity as giving us the British Constitution, and when the doors of the colonial office are closed against reformers or republicans, as Sir Francis Head tauntingly styles us, and when we see this province under the dynasty of a foreign governor and an orange oligarchy retrograding in one year as much as it had advanced in five, I think anyone not willfully blind must see that while this baneful domination continues, we have not the slightest chance for prosperity, and that if we will be well governed, we must govern ourselves. The disillusionment of reformers like Robert Duncombe wasn't the only reason for the sour political climate in Upper Canada in 1837. There was also an economic depression. William Proudfoot, a Methodist preacher, reported that the crops were so bad in 1836 that farmers who usually exported wheat had had to buy it for bread at very high prices. Livestock died that winter for lack of fodder. Worldwide financial collapse tightened credit in the stores. And at the Bank of Canada in Toronto, According to Mackenzie's biographer, Charles Lindsay, the Tories blocked the wickets to prevent a run on the banks. And then there were the times themselves. Change was in the air. Revolution in France in 1830, the Great Reform Bill in England in 1832, wars of independence in Latin America. William Lyon Mackenzie kept his readers abreast of the latest news in The Colonial Advocate, and he himself meditated on the signs of the times. 
The contest is now between the privileged and the unprivileged, and a terrible one it is. The slave snaps his fetters. The peasant feels an unwanted strength nerve his arm. The people rise and stand an awful majesty and demand in strange tones their ever despised and hitherto denied rights. They rise and swear in a deep and startling oath that justice shall reign. Not to this country and continent alone, nor chiefly is this revolution confined. It reaches the old world, the millions downtrodden for ages by kings, hierarchies and nobilities awake. Kings put their hands to their heads to feel if their crowns be there. Hierarchies lash themselves and cry mightily unto Baal. Nobilities tremble for their privileges. Time-cemented and moss-covered steet fabrics reel and totter. All who live on abuses seem to themselves to see the handwriting on the walls of their palaces and to feel everything giving way beneath them. Up and who are the more with thee? Up and who are the more? Better brave the tyrants frown and let thy country fall with thee. Up and who are the more with thee? Up and who are the more? Better brave the tyrants frown and let thy country fall. The election of 1836 and its aftermath fragmented the reformers. Without the assembly as a focus for their activities, they tended to split into two distinct camps, the moderates, who more or less retired to the sidelines, and the radicals, who pushed ahead into more militant action. By the summer of 1837, the policy of the radicals was shading towards outright independence. They formed themselves into political unions, and in July, the Toronto reformers published what might be described as a cautious declaration of independence. The time has arrived after nearly half a century's forbearance under increasing and aggravated misrule when the duty we owe our country and posterity requires from us the assertion of our rights and the redress of our wrongs. Government is founded on the authority and is instituted for the benefit of a people. When, therefore, any government long and systematically ceases to answer the great ends of its foundation, the people have a natural right, given them by the Creator, to seek after and establish such institutions as will yield the greatest quantity of happiness to the greatest number. The right was conceded to the present United States at the close of a successful revolution, to form a constitution for themselves, and the Loyalists, with their descendants and others now peopling this portion of America, are entitled to the same liberty without the shedding of blood. More they do not ask, less they ought not to have. The declaration of the Toronto reformers was echoed from other radical districts. The St. Thomas Liberal called it a noble document, which would be treasured up by a brave people struggling to be free. But the bold rhetoric of the radicals also produced a reaction. Loyal constitutional associations were formed, and the Orangemen girded up their loins for war. When Mackenzie tried to hold a meeting in Albion, they were ready. 
Mr. Mackenzie entered this loyal township according to his appointment on Monday last at about ten o'clock in the morning, accompanied by a cavalcade of forty persons to proclaim King Papineau O'Connell and himself, with the eagle and stars for their rallying point. The loyal boys of Albion, however, showed no disposition to swear allegiance to such a government, but on the contrary, disgusted and enraged beyond all endurance at the impudence of those who had dared to invade the borders of their realm to preach sedition against our gracious queen and glorious constitution, adopted a very summary mode of ridding themselves of the whole gang. No sooner had little Mackenzie mounted the fatal cart with his chairman and secretary than in the twinkling of a bedpost, with the well-known shout of Foch Abalach, English, clear the way, the whole concern was shoved into the Humber, and the rebel army was made to feel the power of an Irish shillelagh. It was impossible to restrain the fury of our people, and the consequence was that many of their enemies were left weltering in their blood. Poor Mackenzie begged his life. Lloyd of Lloydstone lost his eye tooth, and Squire Lount his hat and a little of his Yankee blood. We picked up as the spoils of war thirty-two hats after the action was over, and I take it for granted that the heads that wore them may have required a little plastering to fit them for new ones. This account of the Battle of Albion is taken from a Tory paper and should not be relied upon for its factual details. Mackenzie's paper reported the same meeting as a complete rout of the Orangemen by the reformers. Journalism, in 1837, was unfailingly partisan. But what is certain is that an undeclared civil war was already underway between the shock troops of reform and reaction. By the fall, some reformers had already begun to gather north of Toronto for military drills. But no definite plan for rebellion seems to have existed until October, when Mackenzie first saw the chance he had been waiting for. Lower Canada was already on the brink of armed conflict, and the commander-in-chief of the British forces, Sir John Colborne, had requested military assistance from Governor Head. Head was convinced that any attempt at revolution in Upper Canada would prove impotent, and he gladly sent off the entire British garrison to Lower Canada. Mackenzie called a meeting at Dole's Brewery. I said that the troops had left, that Fort Henry was open and empty, and a steamer had only to sail down to the wharf and take possession. That I had sent two trusty persons to the garrison that day, and it was also to let. And that the lieutenant governor had just come in from his ride and was now at home, guarded by one sentinel. And that my judgment was that we should instantly send for Dutch's foundry men and Armstrong's axe-makers, all of whom could be depended on. And with them go promptly to the government house, seize Sir Francis, carry him to the city hall, a fortress in itself, seize the arms and ammunition there and the artillery, etc., in the old garrison, rouse our innumerable friends in town and country, proclaim a provisional government, send off the steamer of that evening to secure Fort Henry, and either induce Sir Francis to give the country and executive council responsible to a new and fairly chosen assembly to be forthwith elected after packing off the usurpers in the bread and butter parliament, or if he refused to comply, go at once for independence and take the proper steps to obtain it. The other reformers blanched at Mackenzie's plan for a coup d'etat. It was too sudden, too hasty. They wanted assurances that the country was really ready to rise in support of them. 
reluctantly, Mackenzie agreed to an alternative plan. He was to go back to the country north of Toronto to organize a mass march on the city. The date was set for December 7th. Dr. John Rolfe was to head up the provisional government they would establish. Mackenzie set off north of the ridges once again. His rhetoric was charged, furious, prophetic. Brave Canadians, do you love freedom? I know you do. Do you hate oppression? Who dare deny it? Do you wish perpetual peace and a government founded upon the eternal heaven-born principle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then buckle on your armor and put down the villains who oppress and enslave our country. Put them down in the name of that God who goes forth with the armies of his people. Bishops and archdeacons are bribed to instruct their flocks that they should be obedient to a government which defies the law. Yet God has opened the eyes of the people to the wickedness of these reverend sinners, just as God's prophet Elijah did the priests of Baal of old. The power that protected ourselves and our forefathers in the deserts of Canada, and who has watched over us from infancy to manhood, will be in the midst of us in the day of our struggle for our liberties. We have given Head and his employers a trial of forty-five years, five years longer than the Israelites were detained in the wilderness. The promised land is now before us. Up then and take it, but set not the torch to one house in Toronto unless we are fired at. We cannot be reconciled to Britain. We have humbled ourselves to the Pharaoh of England, to the ministers and great people, and they will neither rule us justly nor let us go. Up then, brave Canadians, get ready your rifles and make short work of it. Woe be to those that oppose us, for in God is our trust. During the week of December the 4th, something in the range of a thousand people gathered at Montgomery's Tavern on the northern outskirts of Toronto. Most of them were farmers, tradesmen, or laborers. A smaller group, who tended to be leaders like Mackenzie, came from the middle class. Why they came is a difficult question, since most of them gave their answers after the rebellion had failed. What they said then was generally some variation on the theme of Mackenzie made me do it. Fairly typical was Charles Doan's petition to the governor for clemency. Your petitioner, in common with many others of those who took part in the late rebellion, was alarmed and deluded by various representations, and among others by the following. That the province of Lower Canada was about to revolt, that then victory was certain, that it was the intention of the government of Upper Canada to place that country under martial law, that in such case the reformers would not have the liberty of slaves if they were suffered to live at all, that in case of martial law everyone would be subject to be arrested and tried by court-martial and hung or shot at discretion, that there was a great number of firearms in the city which would be put into the hands of Indians, Negroes, and Orangemen in order to murder plunder, 
burn and destroy the peaceable inhabitants, and that the present was the only opportunity that the people had to secure themselves and posterity from a long and barbarous reign of despotism, that the garrisons were all destitute of troops, and the militia had not been called to do duty and were not prepared for defense, and that there was an understanding between the principal men in government and the reformers to effect the change of administration without firing a gun. It's easy to dismiss Charles Doane's statements as no more than an attempt to excuse himself, but there's a daunting consistency to scores of these petitions which suggests that Mackenzie must certainly have embroidered the facts during his organizing drives. He was convinced that if only he could get people started, a chain reaction would follow. He said afterwards to David Gibson, one of his lieutenants, I got you in so deep you couldn't back out. But it certainly wasn't all manipulation. The grievances of the farmers were very real, and Mackenzie himself seems to have believed that the government would fall to an armed demonstration without it ever coming to fighting. He was wrong. I walked along King Street. The stars were shining bright as diamonds in the black canopy over my head. The air was intensely cold, and the snow-covered planks that formed the footpaths of the city creaked as I trod upon them. The principal bell of the town was in an agony of fear, and her shrill, irregular, monotonous little voice, strangely breaking the serene silence of night, was exclaiming to the utmost of its strength, Murder, 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 and much worse. On the night of December 4th, Sir Francis Head learned that a group of rebels under the leadership of William Lyon Mackenzie were gathering at Montgomery's Tavern. The town was virtually defenseless. No one seems to have had the slightest inkling of impending rebellion, except Colonel James Fitzgibbon, a hero of the War of 1812. He had been trying for days to arouse his fellow townsmen, but everyone treated him as an alarmist. No one present appeared to have any apprehension of approaching danger. I urged upon His Excellency the necessity of arming in our defense. Upon one occasion, Judge Jones, who sat next to me on my right hand, turned towards me and said, You do not mean to say that these people are going to rebel? to which I answered most distinctly, I do, sir. Whereupon he turned from me towards his excellency and exclaimed most contemptuously, Pih! Pih! Two days later, Fitzgibbon rode furiously from house to house trying to awaken the town. Alderman Powell had reconnoitered to the north and had met Mackenzie and some of his men in arms. Powell had been taken captive, but had lied when asked if he was armed. Mackenzie's party had taken his word as a gentleman, and he was put in the charge of Captain Anderson, Mackenzie's only experienced military officer. Powell managed to draw his pistol and shoot Anderson at point-blank range. Then he galloped off down Young Street to warn Toronto. This time, even Judge Jones was impressed. He immediately formed a picket to guard the town's northern approach. Toronto was now in an agony of fear. No one knew the strength of Mackenzie's force. 
Governor Head decided that they must take their stand at the city hall. Colonel Fitzgibbon thought it wise to maintain a small force at the northern edge of the town. In the evening, I was forming a picket to be placed on Young Street during the night, for the one placed there the night before by Judge Jones, he withdrew in the morning. His Excellency, from a window above, saw me and sent for me and asked what I was doing. I answered, forming a picket to be placed on Young Street. He quickly and imperatively said, do not send out a man. To which I said, I cannot endure to leave the city open to the incursions of these ruffians. He continued, we have not men enough to defend the city. Let us defend our posts. And it is my positive order that you do not leave this building yourself. To which I said, I pray of your excellency not to lay such imperative orders upon me. I ought to be in many places, and I ought to be allowed to exercise a discretionary power where you are not near to give me orders. <sighs> but his excellency only repeated his orders more imperatively. I retired from the presence of those around me and reflected intensely on all the circumstances by which we were surrounded. I had no doubt of the importance of having a picket on Young Street to stop the approach of the rebels from Montgomery's should they attempt to enter the city. From what I had seen of night fighting, I knew full well that a handful of men opening a fire upon them as they advanced would at once make them run back, whereas if they were not resisted, they might come in with the more confidence and set fire to the city, and thus give confidence to their friends in town and also in the country at large, and thereby paralyze the spirit of the loyalists everywhere. I therefore formed a picket in a place where His Excellency could not see me, and placed Mr. Sheriff Jarvis at the head of it, and marched it out there myself, and posted it. While Toronto agonized over its defense, the rebels pondered what they were going to do. Their first problem had to do with timing. Their meeting at Montgomery's had originally been set for December 7th, but some days before, Dr. John Rolfe had begun to fear that they had been found out. He unilaterally advanced the date to December 4th. By the time Mackenzie discovered the change, it was too late to countermand it. Some of the men were already on the march. The difficulty was that others, like Colonel Anthony Van Egmond, who was to be their military commander, wouldn't arrive until the 7th. Should they march now, when they still had some element of surprise, or should they wait until everyone had arrived? If they did march, who would lead them? Anderson was dead, Van Egmond still en route. Eventually, Mackenzie took command himself, and on Tuesday, December 5th, they moved off down Young Street. Mackenzie, by this time, appears to have been in a state of considerable agitation. Legend has him dressed in three overcoats and riding a white pony. On the way into town, he paused to harass the postmaster, James Howard, and to burn the house of Dr. Horn of the Bank of Canada. They were also delayed by an offer of amnesty from the governor, later withdrawn when they asked for it in writing. The governor's emissaries were Robert Baldwin and Dr. John Rolfe, Mackenzie's men had all been told that Rolfe was the linchpin of their Toronto support. His appearance as the governor's representative unnerved them. Rolfe presumably accepted the assignment in order to avoid suspicion, but his double role has never been entirely explained, and years later it was a source of considerable acrimony between him and Mackenzie. It was twilight when they finally drew abreast of Mrs. Sharp's garden, where Colonel Fitzgibbon had posted his picket. Sheriff Jarvis's men fired on the rebels, then took to their heels. 
Mackenzie later described what happened next. Our riflemen were in front. After them, the pikemen, then those who had old guns of various kinds, and lastly, those who carried only clubs and walking sticks. Colonel Lount was at the head of the riflemen, and he and those in the front rank fired. And instead of stepping to one side to make room for those behind to fire, fell flat on their faces. The next rank fired and did the same thing. Some persons from town, friendly to us, but not very brave, had joined us during the march, and they, unknown to me, told awful stories about the preparations the Tories had made in several streets to fire out of the windows at us, protected by feather beds and mattresses. These representations terrified many of the country people, and when they saw the riflemen in front falling down and heard the firing, they imagined that those who fell were killed and wounded by the enemy's fire. They took to their heels with a speed and steadiness of purpose that would have baffled pursuit on foot. In a short time, not twenty persons were to be found below the toll bar. This was almost too much for human patience. The city would have been hours in an hour, probably without firing a shot. Hundreds of our friends waited to join us at its entrance. The officials were terror-struck. Governor Head had few to rely on. The colony would have followed the city. A convention and democratic constitution been adopted and a bloodless change from a contemptible tyranny to freedom accomplished. But 800 ran where no one pursued and unfortunately ran the wrong way. Mackenzie's pipe dream of bloodless revolution could never have come true. There were too many conservatives in Upper Canada who were prepared to fight for the British connection. And now, in any case, his chance had passed. It wouldn't come again. Welcome, McNab! Huzzah for the Colonel! Long live Colonel McNab! The day after the Battle of Mrs. Sharp's Garden, Colonel Alan McNab arrived by steamer from Hamilton with the men of the Gore Militia. The next morning, he and Colonel Fitzgibbon stood at the head of a government force ready to march to Montgomery's. Governor Head, on a white charger, marched with them. At 12 o'clock, the militia force marched out of the town with an enthusiasm which it would be impossible to describe. In about an hour, we came in sight of the rebels, who occupied an elevated position near Gallows Hill in front of Montgomery's Tavern, which had long been the rendezvous of Mr. Mackenzie's men. They were principally armed with rifles, and for a short time, favored by buildings, they endeavored to maintain their ground. However, the brave and loyal militia of Upper Canada, steadily advancing with a determination which was irresistible, drove them from their position completely routed Mr. Mackenzie, who in a state of the greatest agitation ran away, and in a few minutes, Montgomery's tavern, which was first entered by Mr. Justice Jones, was burnt to the ground. With Montgomery's tavern in flames behind him, Mackenzie made for the American border. Several days and many adventures later, 
he safely crossed the Niagara River in a rowboat. I had risked much for Canadians and served them long and as faithfully as I could. And now, when a fugitive, I found them ready to risk life and property to aid me, far more ready to risk the dungeon by harboring me than to accept Sir Francis Head's thousand pounds. There are all kinds of people with an old barn or log cabin or whatever on their property between the corner of Eglinton and Young and the uh, Niagara River who will tell you that William Lyon Mackenzie hid there or that he uh, was reclothed by one of their ancestors or the owner. He changed horses or took gruel through a tube or dined with three kinds of wine and the blinds down. Mackenzie's biographer, Bill Kilborn. And it's interesting, nobody turned him in. There was a thousand pound reward out for his capture. A lot of people saw him and a lot of people knew who he was, but nobody ratted on him. And I think that says something for the, the feelings people had for him and the feeling that he had given his life uh, literally, he, he never um, was selfish about things. He, he gave his life and his family's life for uh, the people. And uh, so however eccentric he was and however much he um, changed his views and his ideas, there was an instinctive acceptance of this man uh, and a love of him that uh, has re remained and still is around, I think. Some who saw me at Comfort's Mill went and told the armed Tories of Streetsville, who instantly went to the worthy man's house, insulted and threatened his intrepid and true-hearted wife, proposed to make a bonfire of his premises, handcuffed and chained him, threw him into a wagon and dragged him off to Toronto jail, and, as they said, to the gallows. He lay long in prison, untried, and was only released to find his excellent wife, who had been in the family way in her grave. While Mackenzie made for the border, the reformers in the Western District were still trying to piece together what had happened. First they heard that Mackenzie had taken Toronto, then that he had been defeated, there were rumors that their leader, Dr. Charles Duncombe, was about to be arrested, or that martial law was about to be declared. So they gathered in arms at the village of Scotland. At one point, they may have numbered as many as 500, but they had no clear idea what to do next. And when Duncombe received definite news of Mackenzie's defeat, and then heard that Colonel McNabb had marched against them from Hamilton with a large, well-equipped force of Indians and militia, he dispersed his men. The leaders slipped across the border while McNabb marched into the township of Norwich. So many volunteers had joined his standard that his army was now over a thousand strong. The Western Rising was over before it had begun. When Mackenzie's rebel band was beat away from Gallows Hill To Buffalo they did retreat and said we'd use them mill The Yankees said they did invent the steamboat first of all, sir But Britain taught their Yankee boat to navigate the falls, sir The rebellion of 1837 had a long and sticky aftermath. 
Mackenzie escaped to Navy Island in the Niagara River and declared Upper Canada an independent state, signing himself Chairman Pro Tem. He was joined by a mixture of Canadian exiles and American idealists and adventurers, but they were soon forced to abandon the island, and eventually Mackenzie was imprisoned at Rochester for violating the American neutrality laws, the beginning of his long disillusionment with the United States. Other exiled rebels joined the Patriot Underground and participated in border raids during 1838. These finally ended with decisive defeats at Windsor and Prescott. Five men were summarily executed after the Windsor raid, and six more were hanged at London. At Kingston, 11 prisoners were executed. It was a long and bloody anticlimax to what had begun as a bloodless revolution. Christmas 1837 was a bitter season in Upper Canada. The rebels who had been captured at Montgomery's and in the West were crowded into cold, damp, unsanitary jails in Toronto, Hamilton, and London. Their families often suffered at the hands of vindictive neighbors. Mackenzie's wife, Isabel, and their seven children were facing a long and penurious exile in the United States. The governor was flooded with petitions from suffering women. Sir, hear with patience the voice of the afflicted. Many are crying unto you, and my words shall be few. I am the disconsolate wife of Hugh D. Wilson, who has departed from Toronto jail after seven months' close confinement. I attended the prison with crumbs through the winter, leaving my children and home to cry after me, hoping his long imprisonment and his testimonial desire to stay in the country with fidelity to the Queen would be accepted for his offence. But it hath pleased the government to send him away to me unknown and to where unseen. You are the last I can look to under heaven for a remedy. Have mercy, and heaven reward you the like again. The failure of the rebellion produced a sort of Tory terror in the affected parts of the province. Reformers who had had nothing to do with the rebellion were thrown into jail without charges, Wives of prisoners reported that they were harassed and sometimes robbed. The legislature even went so far as to pass a law exempting Tory vigilantes from prosecution. With the jubilant and vindictive Tories in the ascendant, many people of liberal views decided to leave Upper Canada. Reformers Peter Perry and James Leslie started the Mississippi Emigration Society in the hope of founding a new settlement for disgruntled Upper Canadians in Iowa. Even the governor reported that an astonishing number of people were leaving for the states. In early 1838, 12 men were tried for treason in Toronto. Six were convicted, and the government decided to make an example of two of them. These were Samuel Lount 
a blacksmith from Holland's Landing, and Peter Matthews, described by Mackenzie as a cherry-cheeked farmer of Pickering. Both had led sections of the rebel force, and so were considered to be the highest-ranking rebel officers to have been captured. Attorney General John Beverly Robinson passed sentence. Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews. You have been arraigned upon several indictments charging you with high treason. Unhappily for yourselves, you have conspired to bear down the laws by violence and to introduce confusion and bloodshed where nothing should have been found but contentment and peace. You must surely have foreseen that you could not succeed in such an attempt without committing a series of crimes at which your nature should have revolted. It is for this reason that treason is justly regarded as the greatest of all crimes. It strikes at the very root of all social order. The awful sentence of death must follow. Mrs. Lount went down on her knees to the governor. Thousands of signatures were gathered on a hasty petition for clemency, but the governor and his council were adamant. John Ryerson, the Methodist preacher, described the scene. At 8 o'clock today, Thursday, 12th April, Lount and Matthews were executed. The general feeling is in total opposition to the execution of those men. Sheriff Jarvis burst into tears when he entered the room to prepare them for execution. They said to him very calmly, Mr. Jarvis, do your duty. We are prepared to meet death and our judge. They then, both of them, put their arms around his neck and kissed him. They were then prepared for execution. They walked to the gallows with entire composure and firmness of step. Reverend J. Richardson walked alongside of Lount and Dr. Beattie alongside of Matthews. They ascended the scaffold and knelt down on the drop. The ropes were adjusted while they were on their knees. Mr. Richardson engaged in prayer, and when he came to that part of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us, the drop fell. In 1837, Upper Canada was on the threshold of a new age, about to become a bourgeois society. The age of gentry politics was over, the age of railways was beginning. A new political hybrid, the liberal conservative, was about to appear. And when the dust raised by the rebellion finally settled, it was clear that the high Tories, who stood for an established church and the rule of gentlemen, had lost just as surely as Mackenzie. To John Beverly Robinson, the new order was a coarse, vulgar democracy. Bishop Strawn disliked the secular spirit of the age so much that he found himself making common cause with his old adversaries, the Methodists. The rebellion was a catharsis, a purging of the polarized, ideological politics of the 1820s and 30s. It discredited the extremes and reinforced the middle ground where a more pragmatic politics would flourish in the 1840s and 50s. When Mackenzie finally returned from his long exile, 
and got back into Parliament in 1851, he was just as contemptuous of the venality of the new order as he had been of the family compact. As far as he was concerned, the country was still in the hands of a few crafty and covetous men. He remained a rebel and a one-man band, and he is sometimes given short shrift by historians who would have liked him to calm down and behave more sensibly. But his passions have continued to inspire artists and activists, and in every generation, his image has been remade in the popular imagination. Mackenzie was a crazy man. He wore his wig and skew. He'd don three bulky overcoats in case the bullets flew. Mackenzie talked of fighting while the fight went down the drain. But who will speak for Canada? Mackenzie, come again. Next week, David Cayley will begin the story of the rebellion of Lower Canada. Heard in tonight's program were Chris Wiggins as William Lyon Mackenzie, with other voices by Lynn Derrigan, Sandy Webster, David Fox, and John Jarvis. Original music was arranged and performed by Ian Bell and Anne Lederman of Muddy York. Lyrics to the opening and closing music were from Dennis Lee's poem, 1838. On the production team were Laurie Clayton, Brian Hill, Lorne Tulk, Bill Robinson and Bernie Lucht. We'd like to give special thanks to historians Michael Cross, Robert Fraser, Lillian Gates, Bill Kilborn, Paul Romney, Ron Stagg, Bill Westfall and Sid Wise for their generous help in the production of this program. A printed transcript of this four-part series, The Rebellions of Upper and Lower Canada, will be available. If you'd like a copy of the whole thing, just send a cheque or money order for $5 to CBC Enterprises, 1837, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Mm -hmm.